Hey y'all, welcome back. Alright, first, do you want me to put the readings closer together? Um, because I've been leaving times between because I'm, I'm watching my analytics and it seems like everyone is reading or listening to To Kill a Mockingbird Fahrenheit 451 Fight Club before you start listening to whatever book I'm reading, uh, which is uh, Slaughterhouse Five Night. Um, so I'm not getting a lot of readings of Slaughterhouse yet, but I'm getting a lot of readings of Mockingbird, Fahrenheit, and Fight Club. So I'm going to put a poll on the Twitter. Uh, I'll leave it up for about a week. Go vote, please. And let me know if you want more readings. Um, so the Twitter is at damned books underscore 451. So we got that. And, um, I think I told y'all I got a new job. So we have a beer bar in our grocery store and we re put a lot of the local brews on. I'm right. How American is a beer bar in a grocery store? But today, uh, one of our local breweries here in Charleston, Edmund Oats, took over all of our eight taps. So, this dyslexic storyteller is drinking. She is drinking the Breath of Nebula. It's a New England IPA. Pretty damn good. And uh, I was actually a little bit surprised because the first thing that hits you is hops. I'm not a hoppy person. But then there's citrus, so it kind of evens out. So it is a pretty damn good beer. I have had one and a half. And we all know I'm a lightweight. So I'm going to see if we'll be able to say Trafmandorians. Trafamandorians. There you go. And uh, drink every time I fuck it up. So, drink. Alright. You are listening to Damned. I am the storyteller. And we are reading Slaughterhouse 5 by Kurt Vonnegut. Starting on chapter 3. I, I just got to add two more things. One, my mic is being an asshole. So I'm having to record this on my phone. So the sound quality sucks. You're still going to be able to hear me read, but it's not going to be as clear. And two, I took pictures of their beer cans because they're beautiful. They're just black and white. Uh, looks like pen and ink drawings. Um... And yeah, they're awesome looking. And they actually stand out like you have this beer wall full of colors and then this stark black and white is off. It's actually really pretty. So I'm going to post them on my Instagram and uh, and also put them on my Twitter. So you know what it is. Uh, if you don't, listen to the intro. Alright, we're going to start chapter 3 here.
so I totally forgot. Um, about 20th, 21st, round in that area that weekend. I'm going to do a, a short, like, five-minute reading of the opening of Good Omens. Uh, I would like to do it as the next book. So I want to see what you guys think. And uh, I'm, I'm going to have another beer with it because the angel names are crazy. And so, yeah, I'll uh, put the exact date up on Twitter for probably it's probably going to be about five or six minute episode of the very beginning of Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, who both are amazing. And uh, I might do American Gods, which is a Neil Gaiman book. So anyway. It was just like a thought I needed to throw in. Alright, I got my beer, my book, and my old lady reading glasses. So let's go. This is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Chapter 3. The Germans and the dog were engaged in a military operation which had an amusingly self-explanatory name. A human enterprise which is seldom described in detail, whose name alone, when reported as news or history, gives many war enthusiasts a sort of post-coital satisfaction. It is, in the imagination of combat fans, the divinely listless love play that follows the orgasm of victory. It's called Mopping Up. The dog, who sounded so ferocious in the winter distances, was a female German shepherd. She was borrowed that morning from a farmer. She had never been to war before. She had no idea what game was being played, and her name was Princess. Two of the Germans were boys in their early teens. Two were ramshackle old men. Droolers as toothless as carp. They were irregulars, armed and clothed fragmentary with junk taken from real soldiers who were newly dead. So it goes. They were farmers just across the German border, actually, not far away. Their commander was a middle-aged corporal, red-eyed, scrawny, tough as dried beef since sick of war. He had been wounded four times, then patched up, and then sent back. He was a very good soldier about to quit, about to find someone to surrender to. His bandy legs were thrust into golden cavalry boots, which he had taken from a dead Hungarian colonel, on the uh, Russian front. So it goes. Those boots were almost all he owned in the world. They were his home. An antidote. One time, a recruit was watching him bone and wax those golden boots, and he held it up to the recruit and said, If you look deeply enough, you'll see Adam and Eve. 
Billy, Billy Pilgrim had not heard this antidote. But lying on the black ice there, Billy stared into the patina of the corporal's boots, saw Adam and Eve in the golden depths. They were naked. They were so innocent, so vulnerable, so eager to behave decently, and Billy Pilgrim loved them. Next to the golden boots were a pair of feet that were swaddled in rags. They were crisscrossed by canvas straps that shod with hinged wooden clogs. Billy looked up at the face that went with the clogs. It was the face of a blonde angel, a 15-year-old boy. That boy was beautiful as Eve. Billy was helped to his feet by the lovely boy. And the others came forward to dust the snow off Billy, and they searched him for weapons. He didn't have any. The most dangerous thing they found on his per person was a two-inch pencil stub. Three inoffensive bangs came from far away. They came from German rifles. The two scouts who had ditched Billy and Weary had been shot. They were laying in the ambush for the Germans. They had been discovered and shot from behind. Now they were dying in the snow, feeling nothing, turning the snow to the color of raspberry sherbet. So it goes. So Roland Weary was the last of the three musketeers. And Weary, bug-eyed with terror, was being disarmed. The corporal gave Weary's pistol to the pretty boy. He marveled at Weary's cruel trench knife, said in German that Weary would no doubt use this knife on him to tear his face off with the spiked knuckles. To stick the blade into his belly or his throat. He spoke no English, and Billy and Weary understood no German. Nice playthings you have here, the corporal said to Weary, and handed the knife to the old man. Isn't this a pretty little thing? <laughs> he tore open Weary's overcoat and blouse. Brass buttons flew like popcorn. The corporal reached into Weary's grasp, gaping bosom as he meant to tear out his pounding heart. But he brought out Weary's bulletproof Bible instead. A bulletproof Bible is a Bible small enough to be slipped in a soldier's breast pocket over his heart. It's a uh, sheathed in steel. The corporal found the dirty picture of the woman and the pony in Weary's hip pocket. What a lucky pony, eh? He said. Hmm. Hmm. Don't you wish you were that pony? He handed the picture to the old man. Spall's war. It's all yours, lucky lad. Then he made Weary sit down in the snow and take off his combat boots, which he gave to the beautiful boy. He gave Weary the boy's clogs, so Weary and Billy were both without decent military footwear now, and they had to walk for miles, miles, 
with Weary's clogs clacking and with Billy bobbing up and down and up and down, crashing into Weary from time to time. Excuse me, Billy would say, or I beg your pardon? They were brought at last to a stone college with a fork in the road. It was a collecting point for prisoners of war. Billy and Weary were taken inside, where it was warm and smoky. There was a fire sizzling and popping in the fireplace. The fuel was furniture. There were about mm, 20 other Americans there, sitting on the floor with their backs to the wall, staring into the flames, thinking whatever there is to think, which was zero. Nobody talked. Nobody had any good war stories to tell. Billy and Weary found places for themselves, and Billy went to sleep with his head on the shoulder of an unprotesting captain. The captain was a chaplain. He was a rabbi. He had been shot through the hand. Billy traveled in time opened his eyes and found himself staring into the glass eyes of a jade green mechanical owl. The owl was hanging upside down from a rod of stainless steel. The owl was Billy's optometer in his office in Ilium. An optometer is an instrument used for refractive errors in eyes in order that corrective lenses may be prescribed. Billy had fallen asleep while examining a female patient who was in the chair on the other side of the owl. He had fallen asleep at work before. It had been funny at first. Now Billy was starting to get worried about it. About his mind in general. He tried to remember how old he was and he couldn't. He tried to remember what year it was and he couldn't remember that either. Doctor, the patient said tentatively. Hmm, he said. You're so quiet. Oh, sorry. You were talking away there, and then you got quiet. Um, did you see something terrible? Some disease in my eyes? No, no, said Billy, wanting to doze off again. Your eyes are fine. You just need glasses for reading. And he told her to go to the corridor to see the wide wide selection of frames there. When she was gone, Billy opened the drapes and no one wiser as to what was outside. The view was still blocked by a Venetian blind which he'd hoisted clatteringly. Bright sunlight had come crashing in and there were thousands of parked automobiles out there twinkling on a vast lake of blacktop. Billy's office was part of a suburban shopping center. Right outside Billy's, right outside the window was Billy's own Cadillac, a Dorado Coupe de Ville. He read the stickers on the bumper. Visit Austable Chasm, said one. 
Support, support your police department, said the other. There was a third. Impeach Earl Warren, it said. The stickers about the police and Earl, they were gifts from Billy's father-in-law, a member of the John Birch Society. The date the license plate was 1967. That would make Billy Pilgrim 44 years old. He asked himself this, where have the years gone? Billy turned his attention to his desk. There was an open copy of the Review of Optometry there. It was open to an editorial, which Billy now read, his lips moving slightly. What happens in 1968 will rule the fare of European optometrists for at least 50 years, Billy read. With this warning, Jean Thorhart Secretary of the Nation Union of Belgian Optometrists is pressing for the formation of a European Optometry Society. The alternative, he says, would be obtaining a professional status or, by 1971, reduction to the role of spectacle sellers. Billy tried hard to care. A siren went off and scared the hell out of him. What was expecting the Third World War at any time? The siren was simply announcing it was high noon. It was housed in a cupola atop a firehouse across the street from Billy's office. Billy closed his eyes. When he opened again, he was back in the Second World War. His head was back on the wounded rabbi's shoulder. A German was kicking his feet, telling him to wake up, it's time to move on. The Americans, with Billy among him, formed a fool's parade to the road outside. There was a photographer present, a German war correspondent with a Leica. All right, side note, Leicas are beautiful, beautiful cameras. Um, they're really expensive, too. Um, and they shoot best in film, not in digital. I just have to put that because I always wanted one, and they're like $1,000 for the film one. All right, side note over. He took pictures of Billy's and Roland's weary feet. The picture was widely published two days later as a heartening evidence of how miserably equipped the American army often was, despite its reputation for being rich. The photographer wanted to capture something more lively, you know, like a picture of an actual capture. So the guards staged one for him. They threw Billy into shrubbery. When Billy came out of the shrubbery, his face wreathed in a goofy goodwill. They menaced him with their machine pistols as though they were capturing him. Billy's smile as he came out of the shrubbery was at least as peculiar as the Mona Lisa's. 
for he was simultaneously on foot in Germany in 1944 and in his Cadillac in 1967. Germany dropped away. In 1967 became bright, clear, free of any interference from any other time. Billy was on his way to a Lions Club luncheon meeting. It was a hot August, but Billy's car was air-conditioned. He stopped by a signal in the middle of Ilium's Black Ghetto. The people who lived there hated it, as, hated it so much they had burned it down a lot a month before. It was all they had, and they wrecked it. The neighborhood reminded Billy of some of the old towns he had seen in the war. The curbs and the sidewalks were crushed in many places, showing where National Guard tanks and half-tracks had been. Blood Brother was a message written in pink paint on the side of a shattered grocery store. There was a tap on Billy's window. A black man was there. He wanted to talk about something. Light changed and Billy did the simplest thing and drove on. He drove through a scene of an even greater demolition. It looked like Dresden after it was firebombed, like the surface of a moon. The house where Billy had grown up used to be somewhere. It was so empty now. This was urban renewal. A new Ilium government center and a pavilion of the arts and a peace lagoon and a high-rise apartment buildings were coming soon. And that was all right with Billy Pilgrim. The speaker at the Lions Club meeting was a major in the Marines. He said that Americans had no choice but to keep fighting in Vietnam until they achieved victory or until the communists realized they could not force their way of life on weak countries. The Major had been there on two separate tours of duty. He told of many terrible and wonderful things he had seen. He was in favor of the increased bombings of bombings of North Vietnam back into the Stone Age. But it refused to see reason. Billy was not moved to protest the bombings of North Vietnam, did not shudder about the hideous things himself had seen bombings do. He was simply having lunch in the Lions Club, which he was president of now. Billy had a framed prayer in his office wall, which express, expressed his method for keeping on, even though he was unenthusiastic about living. A lot of patients who saw the prayer on Billy's wall told him it helped them keep going on too. It went, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom always to tell the difference. Among the things Billy Pilgrim could not change were the past, the present, and the future. 
and now he was being introduced to the marine major the person who was performing the introduction and telling the major that Billy was a veteran that Billy had a son who was a sergeant in the Green Berets in Vietnam the major told Billy that the Green Berets were doing a great job and he should be proud of his son oh I am I certainly am said Billy Pilgrim he went home for a nap after lunch he was under doctor's orders to take a nap every day the doctor hoped this would relieve the complaint that Billy had every so often for no apparent reason Billy would find himself weeping nobody ever caught Billy doing it only the doctor knew it was an extremely quiet thing Billy did and not very moist. Billy owned a lovely Georgian home in Ilium. He was rich, something he never expected to be, not in a million years. He had five other automatrists working for him in the shopping plaza location. It netted over $60,000 a year. In addition, he owned a fifth of the new Holiday Inn on uh, Route 54 and half of three Tasty Freeze stands. Tasty Freeze was sort of a frozen custard. It gave all the pleasure that ice cream could give without the stiffness or bitterness, bitter coldness of ice cream. Billy's home was empty. His daughter Barbara was about to get warned, and she and his wife had gone downtown to pick out patterns for her crystal and silverware. There was a note saying that on the kitchen table. There was no servants. People just weren't interested in careers in domestic service anymore. There wasn't a dog either. There used to be a dog named Spot, but he died how it goes Billy had liked Spot a lot Spot liked him Billy went up the carpeted stairway and into his and his wife's bedroom the room had flowered uh, wallpaper there was also a double bed with a clock radio on the table beside it also on the table were the controls for the electric blanket and the switch to turn on gentle vibrator which was bolted to the springs of the box mattress the trade name of the vibrator was magic fingers the vibrator was the doctor's idea too Billy took off his trifocals and his coat and his necktie and his shoes he closed the Venetian blinds then the drapes and he lay down on the outside of the coverlet. But sleep would not come. Tears came instead. They seeped. They, Billy turned on the magic fingers. And he, was, he jiggled while he wept. The door chimes rang. Billy got off the bed and looked down through the window at the front doorstep to see if somebody was important had come to call. There was a crippled man down there, 
As spastic in space as Billy Pilgrim was in time. Convulsions made the man dance flappingly all the time. Made him change his expressions, too. As though he was trying to imitate several various famous movie stars all at the same time. Another cripple was ringing the doorbell down the street. He was on crutches. He only had one leg. He was so jammed between his crutches that his shoulders hit his ears. Billy knew what the cripples were up to. They were selling subscription magazines that would never come. People subscribed to them because the salesmen were so pitiful. Billy had heard about this racket from a speaker at the Lions Club about two weeks before. A man from Better Business Bureau. The man said that anybody who saw cripples working in a neighborhood for magazine subscriptions should call the police. Billy looked down the street and saw a new black Buick Riviera parked about a half a block away. There was a man in it, and Billy assumed correctly that he was the man who had hired the cripples to do his thing. Billy went on weeping as he contemplated the cripples and their boss. His door chimes clanged hellishly. He closed his eyes and opened them again, and he was still weeping, but he was back in Luxembourg again. He was marching with a lot of other prisoners. It was a winter wind that was bringing tears to his eyes. Ever since Billy had been thrown into the shrubbery for the sake of a picture, he had been seeing St. Elmo's fire, a sort of electronic radiance, around the heads of companions and captors. It was in the treetops on the rooftops of Luxembourg. It was beautiful. Billy was marching with his hands atop his head, and so were all the other Americans. Billy bobbing up and down and up and down. Now he crashed into rolling weary accidentally. I beg your pardon, he said. Weary's eyes were tearful too. Weary was crying because of the horrible pains in his feet. The hinged clogs transforming his feet into blood puddings. At each road intersection, Billy was joined by more Americans with their hands on top of their haloed heads. Billy had smiled for them all. They were moving like water, downhill all the time. They flowed at last a main highway on the valley's floor. Though the valley flowed a Mississippi of humiliated Americans, Tens of thousands of Americans shuffled eastward, their hands clasped on top of their head. They sighed and groaned. Billy and his group joined the river of humiliation, and the late afternoon sun came from out of the clouds, and the Americans didn't have the road to themselves. They were westbound lane, boiled and broomed with vehicles which were rushing German reserves to the front. The reserves were violent, wind-burned, bristly men. They had teeth like piano keys. They were festooned with machine-gun belts, smoked cigars, and guzzled booze. They took a wolfish bites from sausages and patted their horny palms into the potato masher 
grenades. One soldier in back was having a drunk's herd picnic all by himself on top of the tank. He spit upon the Americans. He sp the spit hit Roland Weary's shoulder, gave Weary a forgery of snot and bloodwurst and tobacco juice and snops. Billy found the afternoon strikingly exciting. There was so much to see. Dragon's teeth, killing machine, corpses with bare feet that were blue and ivory. So it goes. Bobbing up, down, and up and down. Billy beamed lovingly at the bright lavender farmhouse that had been spattered with machine gun bullets. Standing in his cockeyed doorway was a German colonel. With him was an unpainted whore. Billy crashed right into Weary's shoulder, and Weary cried out sobbingly, Walk right! Walk right! <laughs> they were climbing a gentle rise now. They had reached the top, and they weren't in Luxembourg anymore. They were in Germany. A motion picture camera was set up at the border to record the fabulous victory. Two civilians in bearskin coats were leaning on the camera when Billy and Weary came by. They had run out of film hours ago. One of them singled out Billy's face for a moment, then focused at infinity again. There was a tiny plume of smoke at infinity. There was a battle then. People were dying. So it goes. And the sun went down, and Billy found himself bobbing up and down, up and down, in the place in the railroad yard. There were rows and rows of boxcars waiting. They had brought reserves to the front. Now they were going to take the prisoners into Jeremy's interior. Flashlight beams densely. The Germans sorted out the prisoners according to rank. They put the Alright, we're stopping there. Mostly because I'm getting enough of a buzz that I can't be in dyslexic and trying to read with the buzz is not easy. Uh, but I want to thank Edmund Oates for the beer. Breath of Nebula is what it's called. And it's delicious. So the poll will be up. Vote, please, because I don't know what you want unless you tell me. So, yes, shorter episodes, or no. It's basically your thing. Um, I took some really awesome pictures of the beer. You gotta see the can. It's gorgeous. Um, and I'm gonna put that on Twitter and Instagram. And both of those are at damnedbooks underscore 451. So, awesome beer. I'm a lightweight. And so it goes. <laughs>